0: Let's join together in prayer as we come to the Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We've sought to follow it carefully and closely, always seeking to understand more and more about our Saviour. And today as we see him confronting a difficult, confronting situation, we thank you for his calmness, for his words and for his power. May these things be reflected in my words today and may we all feel as though, know, that we have met with him in his word this day. We pray this with thanks in his name. Amen. Well, I know I've used this line before, but I'll say it again because it applies this morning. This morning's text is yet another turning point in Matthew's presentation of Jesus. It's a turning point to be understood in this way. All of the most recent events that we've been looking at over these last few weeks have led us to the top of the mountain, where Jesus was transfigured and his disciples saw his glory. And so now as Jesus and his three disciples make their way down from the summit of that mountain to rejoin the other disciples down in the valley of Bilo, leaving the dizzying heights of what they have just seen, they come to a very, very different scene. This is quite a big contrast and it's there deliberately. From the glory revealed up there on the mountain to the valley below where the effects of sin, the tragedy of unbelief and the reality of the devil are all on display. And all this while Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And all this is brought to us in this confronting story of this young boy possessed by a demon accompanied by a fretful father and with them powerless disciples who cannot do anything at all about the situation until of course Jesus arrives and takes charge and he does so by speaking uh, to the father and to the crowds with words of rebuke, to the boy with words of deliverance, to the disciples with words of encouragement, and then again with more words of his death. And by each of these things, Matthew continues to point us to the ongoing ministry of Jesus to this fallen world, The perils of unbelief and the urgent need for us, the readers, to be on his side through this thing that we call faith. There are three matters then for us to note from the text this morning. First in verses 14 to 16, I want you to see the reality of sin and the misery it brings. The reality of sin and the misery it brings. In these verses, Matthew tells us how Jesus came down from the mountain and stepped right into a tragic situation involving this boy. And what a sorry sight its it is. It doesn't matter that we aren't told how this particular condition came about. I'm not even going to suggest anything that might fill in the blank. We're just not told. But I do want you to note, looking at the boy's condition as Matthew presents it, that we see in him a terrible picture of what sin has done in the world. You've probably noticed the news headlines were all about the fact that we live in a fallen world. All human history from Genesis 3 onwards has taken place in this fallen world. And in this fallen world, we can be sure that the effects of sin will always rear its ugly head. And whenever it does, the effect it has is tragic. See this scene. Jesus and Peter and James and John are returning to rejoin the other disciples who've been carrying on some kind of ministry while the others have been up there on the mountain. And as they descend, they meet this crowd and within the crowd there is confusion and discussion and turmoil. And from the crowd steps out a man. The father of the boy presents himself to Jesus and on his knees begs for help In the other gospels we learn that this this is the man's only son And as an only son he was therefore doubly precious to his parents The other Gospels also tell us a bit more about the boy's afflictions. Mark describes the symptoms of epilepsy, the grinding of the teeth, the convulsions of the body, frothing at the mouth. Luke, the doctor, also notices this and describes him in the same way. Mark also adds that the boy was also unable to speak and unable to hear. And then both Matthew and Mark make it very clear that this child is not just sick but demon-possessed. The exact relation between his demon possession and perhaps any other diseases is not specified. We're left with questions as to why and to how. We're not told, but we are given information that Satan's hand is in it. And either way, knowing the cause does not help the boy from our perspective, does it? Then enters this father who begged for Jesus to help, appealing to his pity, to his mercy, to his compassion. He knows that Jesus will care about his son. And that says something about the father, even though his faith is far from perfect without doubting. Again, Mark tells us that the Father's response to the situation in begging for Jesus' help began with an if, saying, if you can help, if you can do anything, take pity on us. The Man is uncertain. Again, we're not told why. Perhaps the inability of the disciples to help had caused him to wonder if even Jesus could do anything when they could not. Maybe in the back of the mind, his mind, was the thought that this was an occasion where Jesus can't help, so it 's a desperate plea, "If you can it's sad, isn't it, when a lack of faith causes those who don 't know Jesus to doubt his ability to help. But notice Jesus response in verse 23. He says to him, "If you can, all things are possible." to them who believe. Jesus makes it clear that he has absolute sovereign power and the man's only duty is to believe him. So even though this man believes that Jesus will be compassionate and full of pity, maybe that's as far as it went at this point in time. Maybe he's not really sure that Jesus can do anything at all. Maybe it's the fact that this man has been living with this malady in his son's life from the time of his birth. And maybe he's lost all hope. Having just brought the boy to the disciples only to find that they couldn't help him. So now in his desperation, he sees Jesus arrive and he turns to him in hope. Can you see then this picture of the boy as described here is this picture of what sin does. Sin brings Misery. We have a vivid, tangible picture of this truth. And it's important for us to lock on to that for a moment because there are many who live with sin as the dominant direction in their lives, often without the drastic symptoms. And because of this, they think they're okay. But in this boy, we see a tragic description of all mankind in our natural state. See him as a picture of anyone who's apart from Jesus. His helplessness because of sin. And see here the inability of anyone looking on to do anything about sin or the effects of it. This scene reminds us that this fallen world in, what, in which we live is not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever been around an unbelieving friend in a time of tragedy? Have you ever heard God get the blame for things that go wrong? Even by people who don't even believe that he exists. Such is the mess the world is in. And yet sadly the situation not only remains but it persists. Either the world is one that's come about by chance where death and disease and suffering are part and parcel of what makes up life and these are enemies that none can deal with or this world having been made by a good and kind God is one where through our rebellion sin and death have taken hold and God is not at all powerless to help in this but has graciously, wonderfully sent us his son into this world of sin to pull us out of the muck of our sin, that we might be his forever. Second, see the words of Jesus and the truth they bring. Look with me at verses 7 and 18, where Jesus gives a rather surprising but compassionate response to this grieving father's plea. When this father asked Jesus to help him, it seems that Jesus explodes with indignation. Why was it that he responded with, you perverse and foolish generation, how long am I going to have to be among you? Why is Jesus so angry here and who is he angry with? Well, the other gospel accounts can help us. In Mark and in Luke, but especially in Mark, You learn that Jesus' wrath is not directed against the Father. It's not against the boy, but against the religious leaders and the crowds. We are told that as Jesus came up to meet this multitude, that the scribes at that very moment were arguing with the disciples. What were the scribes doing? It seems they were taunting the disciples about their inability to help this man and the boy. So rather than have compassion upon this young man, upon his father, the scribes were delighting in the fact that Jesus' disciples were powerless. They couldn't do anything at all. And this is the very thing that enraged Jesus. The fact that these leaders of God's people could have so little compassion that they could be delighting in this apparent botched job. And so Jesus' terse words here are directed at the perverse and foolish generation, the crowds and the scribes because of their unbelief. And as we note that, we note too that everybody in this passage except Jesus shows a lack of faith. The father, as we've already seen, wasn't really sure whether Jesus could do what he was asking him to do. And the disciples themselves, Jesus said, the problem is your lack of faith. They had not persevered in their prayer as they attempted to deal with the boy. The religious leaders had taken the opportunity to stick the boots into the disciples. And the crowd saw all this as a spectacle, looking on, hoping to see the next miracle that Jesus was going to do. But there's no compassion for the man or his son. And so Jesus' rebuke against unbelief, fell upon them all, even if indirectly. And then as an expression of the total control he had in the midst of the chaos, Jesus healed the boy. And he did that by word of command, demanding the demon to leave with a sharp command and yet one that displayed his compassion in a time of great need and displayed his great power over the devil and so reversing the terrible and devastating effects of the fall. Third, we see the key to the miracle and the help it brings. Verse 19 to 21, we have an account of the debriefing that Jesus gave to his disciples. Mark tells us they went into a house together after these events and they sat down to reflect And as they reflected, Jesus made it clear to the disciples what had just happened and why. And what he revealed was that their unbelief, yes, their lack of faith, had crippled their ability to minister effectively. You'll note this in their response to their questioning of him, why they had been so powerless to do anything to help, as here in this time of reflection they remember what they did and what they didn't do. So the text tells us, he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus made it plain to them, as plain as he could, that their lack of faith was the greatest hindrance to being effective. Now again, as you compare Matthew and Mark, it's very interesting to see what Mark emphasises and what Matthew emphasises. Mark's emphasis rests upon a little phrase concerning the demon that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. His focus is on the kind of enemy the disciples had been up against and that it was going to take a certain kind of prayer to be victorious over that enemy. Nowhere, though, are we let in on the secret of what kind of prayer Jesus is talking about, except to say it's more than likely prayer that expresses complete trust in God, who knows that while we can't, he can. And so Mark's focus is on the power of this supernatural warfare the disciples were facing. But Matthew, as we've seen, focuses on the lack of faith of the disciples. Now think about something with me. If Peter's voice is the voice behind the Gospel of Mark, as scholars believe, it makes sense that in the Gospel of Mark, Peter doesn't draw our attention to the faithlessness of his fellow disciples. After all, he was with Jesus in coming down the mountain when all this had happened. But Matthew does mention the matter, for Matthew was one of the nine who was left behind, who didn't go up on the mountain. He was one one of the ones with little faith. And so Matthew is willing to highlight his own faithlessness in this account. It shows you the absolute honesty of the disciples about the whole situation, one that they would tried to solve but couldn't, without their master present. So teaching us that faith does not give up simply because it encounters obstacles. Mustard seed faith. Though it is tiny, as we heard in other parables of Jesus grows to be a great tree. You remember that Jesus has taught this before in the parable of the mustard seed, but this the disciples' lack of faith had led them to fail to fight and fight with the kind of prayer that recognises total dependence on God. And so as hardened unbelief turns to perversity in the scribes, so a lack of faith disabled the disciples' ability to minister to those whom Jesus called them to minister to. And a lack of faith in us robs us of the same power which God intends also for you. So the whole passage is a reminder to us of how Jesus thinks about unbelief, how dangerous it is as he shows to the disciples what he sees in the scribes and what unbelief ultimately leads to, but also warns his disciples that they just cannot do anything for his kingdom if they try to do it apart from relying on him. And this reminds us of the key to doing anything in his name and how he said to the disciples in John's Gospel, chapter 14, apart from me you can do nothing. Two things as we wrap it up. Let's see this, how this whole event calls us to faith in Jesus even from a young age. Let's not forget that this boy is in his youth, while afflicted by Satan and by ill health. And these afflictions are a reminder that many who are young still and many more who are no longer youth are likewise afflicted, even though they may not have physical symptoms like these or any symptoms at all. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. There are thousands of young people today, this is written in the 1860s, by the way, who seem to have wholly given themselves over to Satan's sin, to be captive by his will. They cast off all fear of God, all respect for his commandments. They serve various lusts and pleasures, They run wildly into every excess. They refuse to listen to the advice of teachers, parents and ministers. They fling aside regard for health and character and worldly respectability. They do all that lies in their power to ruin themselves, body and soul, for time and eternity. They are willing bond slaves to Satan. Who has not seen such young people? They are to be seen in town and country, among the rich and among the poor. Surely such young people give mournful proof that although Satan nowadays has possession of a man's body, still he exercises fearful dominion over our souls. End of quote. The sad thing is, that many may be living with sin as the dominant force of their lives and thinking that it's easy to control and it's pleasure all the way without ever thinking of what sin as master will bring them to. Like fire, which is a great servant, a terrible master. The evidence of that misery may not all be that great now, but it surely will show up in time on the one hand the text is a warning to all that even at a young age that need remains but on the other hand the text is even more an encouragement because it tells us of the great solution to the problem of sin our sin and the sin of the world did you see it in there As they were leaving the scene, heading for Galilee, Jesus spoke to them again and said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. He'll be raised on the third day. We're told that the disciples were greatly distressed by this. I hope that's not your response. I hope your response is that you say, Well, thanks be to God. Sin will be dealt with, not entirely just yet, but it will be defeated through his death and resurrection. That's the gospel, the news of his victory over sin. And though in ourselves we may not have power over him, who through his deceit and lies enslaves people all over the world in despair and distress. Here we see Jesus, who can deliver all who come to him in faith because he came to destroy the works of the devil. Are you trusting in him today? Have you put your faith in him? This passage calls you to make him your hope. For there is no one else who can help like he can and there is no one else who can do what he can and will do if you cry out to him even with a faith that is not yet perfect. Will you do that? Let's pray to him. Let's seek him now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come with sorrow to you. Sorrow for the world we live in. sorry for the part we've played in adding to the woe, the burden and the, the misery of sin in this world. Thank you that you sent your Son into this world to destroy the works of the devil, that he had power over him, that he did so... Just by word of command, we thank you too that you have power over sin, power over death, power because you are the one that suffered in our place. You not only spoke about going to be killed and rising again, but you were killed and you did rise again. And you are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and we rejoice as we hear Jesus speak of the cross that there he defeated the evil one so lift up our eyes again today remind us that you have the power if only we would come to you in faith Forsaking all, I trust him. May it be that we again put our trust and hope in the only one who can save. We pray it for his sake. Amen.